Tonight we're going to look, and for the rest of the semester, we're going to look at the book of Acts. Not going to get through all of it, it's a long book. And um, before we get into it, I actually want to do a, kind of a lengthy introduction of why we're doing the book of Acts. Um, what Acts is, is actually the sequel to the book of Luke. Um, it's written by Luke, it's written to the same guy. Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke 2, a man named, a friend of his named Theophilus. And um, really those books should be held together. If you talk to a lot of biblical scholars, they should, they'll, they'll tell you actually it's not two books, it's one. Uh, they're really helpful to read together. And um, it, it, he begins the book. In the first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And what happens in Acts is this. Is you see that Jesus is continuing something he was doing in his earthly ministry, but he's gone now. And he's still at work. And uh, there are three reasons why I thought it would be beneficial for us to look at some aspects of this book. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to do crazy things like Pentecost, if you all are familiar with that uh, story in Scripture and stuff like that. Um, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, which is, I think, a question a lot of people wonder what's the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? Um, who is he? But there are three reasons I thought it would be beneficial to look at the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is primarily a book about church planning. And the first reason is this, uh, and I think you have these in your handout, is the danger of internal or private Christianity. Sometimes I think what can happen in all of our lives is what it means to be a Christian is about your private internal kind of emotional thought life that that's where you be a christian that's where you do christiany stuff in your life is your private moments inside your head and that's what it means to be a christian is to think christianly in that area kind of pray within your head do your devotional life and all that kind of stuff this notion that christianity is it's internal and it's private and it has no external manifestation other than right christians don't cuss and they don't drink except for in their dorm rooms and why you'll see, right? And that's as much as what you think it means about to be a Christian on the outside. That, that, that's a gross simplification. Um, I want us to see in the book of Acts there's no such thing as private faith. Uh, when you come to Jesus and he purchases you at the cross with his blood, he doesn't purchase 15 minutes in the morning of internal thought life. He doesn't purchase an hour on Tuesday night and an hour on Sunday morning. He purchases all of you. He purchases the private you and the public you, the internal you and the you that's living out there in real life day to day. And what I hope you begin to see is he bought it all and he's going to mess with it all. And to follow Jesus means he's going to go into all of your daily life and say, that's mine and that's mine and that's mine. To follow me, I bought all of you. I'm going to mess with all of your life. All of your relationships get changed by the gospel when Jesus comes into your life. Because what he does is he comes in and he says, I'm your king and I'm a gracious king and I'm a good king and I've forgiven you. But I'm calling you into my kingdom and that means, guess what? All of your relationships are no longer about your ability to manipulate the people around you into making you feel fulfilled and happy. All your relationships now are about you serving everyone else. They're not about you anymore. All of them. In your family, with the parents that you hate or the brother and sister you can't stand, all of a sudden... You're a servant in all those relationships. He's going to meddle with everything. He's going to mess with the way you think about your body. He's going to mess with the way you think about clothes. He's going to mess with the way you buy food. He bought it all. There's no such thing as internal Christianity. He bought the internal you, and he bought the you that's living out there in every aspect of your everyday life. 
That's why we're looking at Acts, because we need to recover that. Secondly, there's maybe this notion that God's sometimes at work, and I called it incidental Christianity. Um, people talk, and, and there's a right time to talk about this. I don't want to disparage this altogether. But people talk about, oh, you know, they talk about something that happened that was amazing and said it was a God thing. And it was a God thing, and that's good in the right times and the right ways. We really should celebrate God at work and, uh, and, and see him at work. But what's implied sometimes in the way people say that is there are all these other times in life where God's not at work. He's only in, at work incidentally. And usually we only think he's at work when we feel something or we feel fired up that day. That somehow our feelings are the only times God can be at work. And so if we're not fired up, then obviously God's not at work. You just can't read the Bible and decide that God's only at work when you happen to feel it that day. And probably what's it, what's it kind of going on is that in the excitement of adrenaline-fueled culture that's created by businesses in order to move product, they want to generate excitement about Under Armour, right, and Katy Perry so that they'll move product. <coughs> Why was that funny in my other side? <laughs> Christian subcultures have looked at that and said, hey, that's how we can move product too. And they said, if we can get people to be excited through the same mechanisms, through, through literally like visual and auditory stimulation, then we can move product too. And they're actually mimicking actually modern marketing techniques instead of preaching scripture and praying for the Holy Spirit. And what's happened is the result is that when Christian culture buys into this, we've got to be exciting in order to move product mentality, People start to work, people start to think, God's only at work when I'm excited. See how it trains us to no longer see God at work anymore? When you read Colossians 1, 15 through 20, if you're going to read, if you're going to memorize five verses in the Bible, I'd say Colossians 1, 15 through 20. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things. And in him, all of creation is holding together at all times. You know what that means? You can't look around right now and see anything that's not a God thing. He's at work. He's at work. Not just when you happen to feel it because a church employed some modern marketing techniques, which aren't all bad. I'm not disparaging that altogether. But you've got to develop a richer theology to see that God's not only at work when you happen to be excited. And the book of Acts shows us that he's always at work. We need to recover Christianity that's not just internal. We need to recover Christianity that's not just incidental. But also, I don't know what I put on the handout. I think I, Christianity. Is that what it says? What I mean by that is me-oriented Christianity. Uh, Christian counselor David Pallison wrote this article about, called The Therapeutic Gospel, and he talks about how the gospel today, because we don't offend anybody by saying they're a sinner... We're all sinners, and we all need a Savior, Jesus, because that's offensive, because it says really bad things about all of us in this room. We need to craft that gospel into something more tasteful that gives people self-esteem. And so some of the ways that comes out is, this is Pallison's kind of take, and he says, you, you hear that therapeutic gospel that's about you instead of the king, when you hear things like, I want to feel loved for who I am, to be pitied for what I've gone through, to feel intimately understood. I want to experience a sense of personal significance and meaningfulness to be successful in my career and to know my life matters. I want to gain self-esteem, to affirm that I'm okay, 
I want to be entertained to feel pleasure in an endless stream of performances that delight my eyes. And I want a sense of adventure and excitement and action and passion so that I experience life as thrilling and, and moving. We want the gospel, we want God to be our therapist. We don't want him to be our king. We want him to make our life easier, but we don't actually want to follow him because when you read about what it means to follow him, that's really hard. And Det Pallison says, this is the Christian gospel that we've got to recover. I need mercy from the king. I need wisdom that only Jesus can provide. I need to learn to love God and neighbor and not myself anymore. I long for God's name to be honored and for his kingdom to, become, to come and his will to be done. I want Christ's glory and his loving kindness and his steadfast to go everywhere. You see, in the gospel, when we're preaching the real gospel instead of the therapeutic gospel, it's Jesus who's proclaimed. It's Jesus who we need. It's Jesus who's glorified. In the therapeutic gospel, it's me having my needs met all the time, whatever it takes. And the, ama- the interesting thing about the gospel, anytime you hear it proclaimed, is, and Jesus says this, in order to have life, you have to die. And if you keep seeking to preserve your life, and if you keep even trying to use Christianity to make you happy, you'll actually never be happy. But when you give up on your own happiness and just serve other people, you'll actually be happy. And you can't trick. You can't be like, all right, here's the way I'm going to be happy. I'll act like a servant even though I'm really just seeking my own happiness. No, no, no. When you abandon yourself, there's actually joy to be had. I want to, the Acts, I think, is going to teach us that Christianity is... It's not internal. It works in your hearts, and it works in our hearts, and it goes out into the world around us and has impact where we go. And it's, God's not only at work because you got fired up listening to your David Crowder CD on the way to class in the morning. David Crowder's good, and Jesus is at work when you're singing that CD, but he's not only at work only when you're having to enjoy that CD on that day. He's at work all the time. He's sustaining creation as we speak. He's at work powerfully, Every time his word is read, whether it's by a boring old 65-year-old Scottish guy or a young 30-year-old Southern Baptist preacher, he's at work. Y'all catch the references there. (laughs) But lastly, the gospel is not here so you can feel what you want to feel. The gospel is not you're going to be okay. That's a subset of what the gospel is. The gospel... Just stated simply is, there is a good king, and he is gracious, and he reigns still today. That's actually what the gospel is, according to scripture. We're going to talk about that a little bit. That's my long introduction to why we're doing Acts. And now what we're going to do is we're going to read the first eight verses of Acts. This is Jesus. He's died. He's risen again. He's got 40 days to hang out with his followers. These are his final words, what he chooses to talk about. This is Acts, written by the physician Luke sequel to the gospel accordingly. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said... You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but I will baptize, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when the Lord had come to, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, 
It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that we see You at work. Uh, now in your scripture, I pray that we would see you at work in all places at all times, dear God, that we would find cause for joy, not just when we happen to be excited, but uh, when we see from scripture that you're always at work. I pray now, dear God, attend to your word, teach us, be with us, Holy Spirit, work change in our hearts. We don't just need information, we need change. Dear God, please help us to start loving you as you've loved us. In your name we pray, amen. Here's my question that kind of set up the book of Acts. And I asked this probably once or twice a semester in the Orange Group. What are you here for? Right? Big existential question. What are you here for? And what I mean by that is not what are you at USC for? That's one part of the question. What I mean by that is, no, no, no. What are people for? What are you for? I want the big existential crisis. Like, I want... I'm always playing for this up here. Like, I want you to sit back and think, like, what am I really here for from beginning to end? This is the reality of it. You have anywhere from one hour to 80 years left. What are you doing with the rest of your time? You got one hour to 80 years left. What are you aiming for with the rest of your time? What are you going to use that time with, whether it's 45 minutes? I don't know if everybody's going to make it home, so, uh, home safely tonight. Or if it's 80 years, Lord willing. What are you aiming for? How are you making that time worthwhile for yourself? And the dangers, the danger in today's culture is really this. The way I avoid that question is by distracting myself, right? If I can, the reason I, sometimes I watch TV to engage good stories, to critically think about them, do what we should do with good art. Um, more often than not, not disparaging TV, it's good art. A lot of times, the problem with TV for me is I turn it on so I can stop feeling and stop thinking about hard things. But I love my four beautiful children. are amazing. A lot of y'all met them. They're incredible. I love them. But it's hard being a dad. And it's hard being a husband. It's hard being a campus minister. A lot of times I turn on TV so I don't have to think about that anymore. The danger for you is to distract yourself so you don't have to answer these kind of questions. And you can distract yourself for an hour to 80 years if you want to. My question is, can you be self-reflective for a moment and see that even though maybe you can't even express it, that you have a goal, you have a plan, you have something you're living towards, something you're angling towards for all of life. And it's a complex picture, the way you want your life to be in three years and five years and 30 years and 60 years. It's complex pictures. It's much more complex than just being wealthy or whatever it is. You know, I, I, We're never that simple. Can you be self-reflective long enough to see that you're living towards something. You have goals. It's impossible to not be goal-oriented. Even somebody who's lazy, we, we, all, we can think of like, well, so-and-so, he doesn't have any goals. No, he actually does. It's usually he, too. It's rarely a girl. But, um, you know, you might be able to think of somebody, or it might be you, who's thinking, I don't have goals, so I'm lazy. Okay, laziness is a goal-oriented activity. What you're saying is, I don't want to feel responsibility, so I'm choosing, I'm making the decision to not engage responsibility and feel the weight of responsibility because my goal 
is to avoid that. Laziness is a choice. It's a goal-oriented activity. People who aren't doing anything have goals and purpose. Their purpose is to not feel responsibility. So everybody's living or angling towards something, even the people who aren't doing anything, because that's still a decision. Everybody's got a goal. Everybody has a mission is another way of saying it. And one of the ways probably most of us in this room have keenly been become aware of how we are purposed and mission and goal-oriented is probably at any given moment, I mean, probably everybody in this room sometimes has at least felt depression tendencies. And what depression is is when you start to realize my goals are a waste of time. I don't feel like I have purpose in life. I feel like what I'm doing is meaningless. You start to feel like death when you all of a sudden realize your goals are kind of stupid. That reveals we're goal-oriented. We're mission people. We have missions. So how do you identify your goal? This is it. You, you just answered this question. How do you use the resources of your life? What I mean by that is your psychological resources, your intellectual resources, your time, your emotional energy, the kind of people you pursue and spend time with. What do you use your money on? All of the resources, as you, once you wake up, you're diverting all of your resources, mental, emotional, social, spiritual, physical, monetary resources, towards something. How are you using them? That tells you what your purpose is. It tells you what your goal is. And here's the harder question. It's hard for all of us. Can you admit that what you say you give yourself to, or maybe what a lot of us, what I want to be giving myself to, actually, it's not what I always give myself to. In fact, maybe rarely is. Can you really be honest with yourself about how you're using all of the resources that is your life every day? Stop giving us the rosy picture of what you want it to be, because we all wish we were using our resources a certain way. Be honest with yourself for a second. Say, how are you really using your resources? What are you angling for as you use your resources? I mean, right, I'm, I'm, I'm a professional Christian. Me and Katie are professional Christians, right? So I'm supposed to say, I'm diverting all my resources to Jesus. I want to live for Jesus. I want that to happen. I hope Jesus continues to call me out all throughout my life, and I hope he subdues me to himself. But the truth be told, my mission and my purpose a lot of the time is to craft this kind of mildly religious, vaguely moral, comfortably upper-middle-class lifestyle. That's what I'm angling for, for the next hour to 80 years. Be honest. You be honest about what you're aiming for. What Jesus has shown us in Acts is that when he comes in your life, he messes it all up. He turns it upside down. That's actually what Paul and Silas get accused of in Acts 17.6 by preaching Jesus. Their accusers take him before some judges and say, these men, by what they are saying, they're turning the world upside down. That's actually what they're accused of doing. Jesus is going to mess up all your plans. He's gonna, it, when Jesus comes to your life, it's beautiful and it feels like death. It feels like death because he comes up and messes up all your plans. And you know what? We love our plans, right? We love our plans. And and it's going to feel like death when Jesus comes in our life because it's actually him prying us away from our self-obsession. But it's beautiful. Because what he's going to give us is something richer and deeper and more lasting to attach our hearts to. And that's him and his kingdom. And I'll see three things about his purpose that he calls us into. 
that it's an ongoing purpose, that it's a big purpose, and it doesn't make sense the way he's going to do it. The first verse in the first book of Theophilus, I began to deal, I've dealt with, sorry, all that Jesus began to do and teach. This is the first thing Luke says that wants to communicate to Theophilus is, in the first book, I talked about Jesus' life all the time, what he began to do and teach. In this book, I'm going to talk about what he continues to do and teach through his people. There's no such thing as, we've, we've all said this, well, back in Bible times, there's no such thing as back in Bible times. What Luke is saying right here is Bible times never stopped. Jesus began to do and teach stuff, and he is continuing to do and teach stuff. It's a mission that hasn't stopped. There's no such thing as like this weird time where crazy stuff was happening, and now God's just not doing as much. No, there was a time when Jesus served his people in his earthly ministry, and we live in a time in which he serves his people in his heavenly ministry, where he is in heaven now. And he's called the church to be his servants and to be the light in this world. And so what that means is, is that to be a Christian is not simply to pray an incantation at the end of a cheesy gospel presentation. We pray and hope that you, if you don't know Jesus, that you come to trust him and that you have that moment. But to simply say that what it means to be a Christian is to pray a prayer at the end of something is reductionistic, it's immature, and it's actually ultimately unhelpful because we've all prayed that prayer a bunch of times, right? And we all know a bunch of people who've prayed that prayer a bunch of times and don't trust Jesus, right? Not saying we're against that. What we're saying is it's not actually really a healthy marker for what it means to be a Christian. Because being a Christian is not simply getting something. What it is is getting in on something that's happening. It's not getting something. It's getting in on something that's happening and participating in it. And that's the first thing that Luke tells us. It's like Jesus was here and he began to do and teach stuff. Now there's church. He's continuing to do and teach stuff through you, his children. He's continuing to do and teach stuff. You're saved not, not just from your sins. You're saved from your sins and into a mission and into a purpose. And if you turn, if you have uh, your, script, your Bible with you, if you turn to the end of Acts, in Acts 28, 31, you'll read it and you'll have the same kind of shock I had when I read it. Because you'll read it, and since we're all Greek scholars like I am, because I only read in Greek all the time, um, talking about Paul, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came. Last verse of the book of Acts, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, with all boldness and without hindrance. And if you're like me, you're like, what? That's crazy, right? Because you never end a sentence in Greek in an adverb. Everybody knows that, right? Y'all, are we all kind of... I know, I know. He ends it with an adverb in Greek grammar that's improper grammar. That's Luke saying something right there. The last words are that the gospel goes forth without hindrance. It's an adverb implying it's still going. He left us a trajectory at the end of the book. He's actually saying this is not the end of the book. This is not in the story. This is not the end of Jesus doing and teaching things. Jesus is still at work. We're part of the same mission. Jesus, actually part of the same mission that Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Elijah, Ezekiel, Jesus, the disciples, and the early church were all participating in. We're in the same mission. It's an ongoing purpose. Jesus is still at work today. Secondly, it's a big purpose. It's a cosmic purpose. Because this is his purpose. 
It's to restore the world to the way we wish it would be. That's what it is. To restore your relationships within your friendships, within your dating relationships, within your family, to the way it was supposed to be, because we're all keenly aware, even though we don't want to talk about it, that it's just not right. That life is not okay, that things do hurt, and it doesn't seem like it's going to heal. That's actually one of the reasons we also distract ourselves, so we don't have to feel the pain of life. He's fixing it all. That's the goal. That's the mission. He's fixing it. He's actually creating the world the way Tolkien says it. He's making all that is sad come untrue. He's making it where there won't be any more broken families, where there will never be abuse, where there will never be addiction, where there will never be death, where we stop scurrying around in our relationships trying to manipulate each other and trying to make ourselves happy and actually enjoying one another for the first time. He's making a good place where people joyfully submit to a good king who takes good care of his people and he loves them deeply. He was then and is today proclaiming and establishing the kingdom of God and it is making the world right again. Jesus, son of God, he had 40 days left, right? For fixing it, setting in place the leadership to start his plan to have his people go and do his mission, right? What are the things he talked about? To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He's got 40 days to prepare 12 guys, really more than that, a couple hundred people, for starting the church movement and carrying it on through the rest of history. This is the way he talks about He goes around and he says, you've got to touch me and see that I really am alive. He goes around and proves the resurrection, and then he talks about the kingdom of God. He spent his time talking about the kingdom of God. And what does that mean? What is the kingdom of God? Now, there's one sense in which God, all of creation is his. He's king over all of creation. But it's possible within a kingdom, just like it's possible today, in a kingdom to have subjects that are disloyal, who don't submit to his reign, who push off his reign, who reject his reign. God sees the world, and he sees that in his world there are those who submit to him and those who don't. Establishing his kingship is bringing his reign to bear in the lives of all of his people. And you see, the reality is, when, when I talk about us being self-oriented and thinking about ourselves all the time and our own happiness, what that is is us pursuing our own individualistic mission and us building our own little kingdom, right? Because, this is true of all of us, I have some purposes and some goals I'm living for in my life, and I look at Scripture sometimes, and it confronts me, and God calls me this way, because that's what it means to submit to Him, and I say, I don't buy that, I'm going this way. Who, it's not that I'm not following God's rules, I'm not following God's rules, and I'm following my rules. You don't ever really, in a sense, choose law for lawlessness, you actually choose, uh, you don't choose lawlessness for law, actually what you choose is a different set of laws that you like better, that are really in accord with your personality, and you choose those over God's law. So we're all managing and creating our own little kingdom. We're all subjects that throw off the reign of the true king. Because whose rules do you submit to? Who do you follow? Ourselves. I'm establishing my rule where I reign for my glory, right? God establishing his kingdom is him pursuing his people and redirecting their hearts and their lives to his reign and calling them into his purpose for his glory. Jesus and his people are establishing the kingdom of God, and it's this. It's bringing the world in submission to the true and good king. 
The kingdom of God is his rule, it's his reign, and it's present everywhere that his children serve and love him and live according to his plan and his purpose instead of their own. And to participate in kingdom building is to submit our own hearts and our own lives to him and more and more in faith and obedience bring others to knowledge and submission to the king. You see, the word gospel is interesting. We have this loaded version of what the word means today, but actually what it means when writers like Paul and Matthew, Mark, and Luke use that word gospel, it had a very loaded political meaning in that context. When a Caesar or an emperor would rise to power, he would send messengers all throughout the empire and declare a gospel. That's what the word was used. It was the announcement that the new Caesar, whatever his name was, rules. The word gospel was the good news that a king reigns. That's actually what the word means. This is a deeply political term. To proclaim the gospel is not simply to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is how God subdues his people. It's how he restores his people. And it's how he creates his people for his kingdom. But the gospel is that our king forgives and our king still reigns. And it's going everywhere. See, verse 8 is actually the outline for the book of Acts. You'll receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and at the ends of the earth. And as you read the book of Acts, that's your outline. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. It's a cosmic story that's going everywhere. And again, Luke leads us, leaves us that little hint at the end that the story hasn't stopped because at the end, the gospel's gone to Rome and it hasn't stopped. It's still going. It's still traveling. So that's the history of it. It's a, it's a story that's continuing from the first century, from before the first century till now, and it's going on today. And it's a purpose that is broad in scope. And lastly, what's the how? How does... How does God actually bring his kingdom into this world? How are we a part of it? In some ways, we're going to answer that question all semester. But the first thing we have to look at is verse 6 and see how he's not doing it. So when they come together, they ask him, Lord, right? He's been talking about the kingdom of God for these last 40 days. When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples ask him, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what's implied in that question is a fundamental misunderstanding about the mission of God and how he's going to establish his kingdom. And it's actually just as relevant today as it was then. Because what they thought was, here's Israel. <clears throat> it's hard to get in the mindset of an Israelite in the first century, but here it is briefly. For thousands of years, these prophets have been coming along and saying, God's going to make your people group into a great nation and bless the world through you, and y'all, there will be there will be more, more of you than there are stars in the sky. That's what it meant to be an Israelite, is to hang on that promise. Here they are in the first century. They have thousand years of history of how that hasn't happened. That's what it means to be an Israelite. They're frustrated, right? So here comes Jesus. He's talking about the kingdom of God all the time, and they're thinking, this is going to be it. This is going to be it. God's going to fulfill all his promises, and he did. But they're deeply confused about how he's doing it because what the disciples are asking is what all the Jews are wondering is, is this it? Are you going to restore the kingdom? Are you going to make Israel a great people again? And what they wanted is they wanted him to set himself up as a king just like the rest of the kings of the world and to establish law and order the way the rest of the kings of the world do it. If we can enact legislation and require people by law to act like Christians, that's the kingdom of God, right? No
We're kind of idiots when we think if you can enact legislation, you can actually change people's hearts. And to just declare law, civil law, to act like a Christian, you ain't changing anybody. You can modify their external behavior. They're not changing their hearts. It's much harder to pursue the kingdom of God than simply that. We'd just make it illegal to not act like a Christian. That would be it. That's what we want, right? And what's interesting is when we start to think that way, it reveals we're not very good at reading the Old Testament. Because you know what happens in the Old Testament? Good people don't vote for a good leader. God appoints a king who's a man after his own heart. And they don't have to vote and figure out and kind of work their way through good legislation. God gives them perfect law. And guess what? It doesn't work. Leader appointed by God. Perfect law given by God. Does it make the nation holy? Does it make them better? Does it change their hearts? No. It's thousands of years of failure. And you see what's happening is God's aiming for something so much better, richer, so much, something so much more than compliance out of a heart that's afraid of punishment. He's not aiming for morality out of fear, and he's not aiming for behavior modification by external restraints. He wants the hearts of his people. You can get the appearance of short-term results by forcing people to act a certain way, by threats. It doesn't have to be legislation. By threat, by force of personality. It certainly happens in some pulpits in the church that people are driving, that preachers maybe, are even driving people to act a certain way out of threat, out of fear, Right? out of force of personality. You're not changing anybody when you're changing people's external behavior by those means. You're just making them do something they don't want to do for a while. And what we do is we end up making Pharisees a bunch of people who act moral and secretly wish they could do all the things they're proud they don't do. He doesn't do it by external pressures. The law does exist, and it is perfect, but it can't give you life. The way the guy who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, said it, it's beautiful. He says, run and work, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A sweeter sound the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. What does Jesus do? How does he bring the kingdom into the world? He calls the apostles, the men who saw Jesus die, These guys saw Jesus die, they saw him buried, and they saw him resurrected. And he says, tell everybody what you've seen. That's how he plans to build his kingdom. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be witnesses to everything you've seen. In Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. Now what have they seen? Y'all, they've seen a king who subdues his people by grace. He didn't lord it over his followers. He didn't threaten them with punishment. that They better, they better act the right way. The king, he walked around and he fed people that were hungry. He walked around and he healed people that were sick and that were hurting. And he walked around and he forgave bad people. He came and he captures the heart of his people by not the king being all-powerful and mighty and threatening us, captured the heart of his people by taking on his shirt and kneeling down on the table and washing their feet. By weeping over their death and by ultimately giving his life for them. What they're witnessing, what they're telling the world about 
is a king who establishes his kingdom and who restores his royal family by humility, by service, and by death, not by might, not by force, not by influence or wealth. He ushers in his way, he ushers in his kingdom in a way the world doesn't understand at all. It doesn't make sense in this world. It doesn't make sense. Everything in this world says the way you establish power and influence in your agenda, it's not by dying. He does the complete opposite of what the world tells us to do for establishing our agenda. Because this is what Jesus, the world says, all right, y'all might might not be stressed about money. I get kids, think about college. I have four girls. That's a lot of weddings. (laughs) Two sets of twins. I'm trying to, maybe we can get two weddings. I don't know. Uh, but like money's stressful right what's the world's answer to being stressed out about money well if you make enough right you don't have to be stressed if you make tons of money you don't have to be stressed here's what Jesus says you want to be free from money give it away so he's telling us always to do the opposite of what the world tells us you want to be great in this world you want to have influence work become superior Develop a great personality. Work harder than everyone else. Be influential. Drive, right? Jesus says, you want to become great? Serve people. Serve people without regard to your own recognition for doing it. You want contentment, right? You want life to finally be comfortable? Then fight for what you need to get, right? To get content, you've got to get it all. Whether it's a spouse, whether it's a job, whether it's wealth, whatever it is, the kind of comfort and leisure that's going to give you contentment, fight, work hard. Jesus says you want contentment, give it all up. You want to inherit the kingdom of heaven, become poor in spirit. You want to inherit the earth, become meek. These are not values that are very, very highly valued in this culture today. If you want life, right? If you want to flourish in this life, if you want life, You've got to put it together. You've got to put it together professionally. You've got to put it together relationally. You've got to put it together physically. And that takes hard work and determination. You've got to pour yourself into all of those things. Jesus says you want life. You've got to die. They were witnesses to the death of the king. They saw him die and they saw him rise again. And he's been turning the world upside down ever since. And they shared the apostles what they witnessed with the world. It was a king who restores his kingdom and calls his people into the same mission, not by legalistic, guilt-driven, you better live it or I'll get you Christianity. He comes and the king restores his people and establishes his kingdom by coming to us when we hadn't cleaned ourselves up, when we hadn't worked hard enough, and we hadn't done a good job and hadn't been driven enough. And in the midst of our mess, he says, you're mine and I'll die for your unrighteousness. I'll die to give you life. Our king's inauguration was him being stripped, beaten, and killed. And he changed the world. Every great person, every great civilization, every great culture, and this will eventually include the United States, eventually makes it into the history books. It ends. They all have a chapter ending to them. They're empires that spanned much larger geographic areas in the United States that we can't even name now. But for thousands of years, one kingdom has done exactly what its king said it would do. It started in Jerusalem, 
and it went to Judea, and it went to Samaria, and it's gone to the ends of the earth. And it's a kingdom in which the king pursues your heart by dying your death and by grace giving you his life. And he calls you to be witnesses to that fact, that he's risen, that he still reigns, and that he still offers grace to any who would join his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you're still at work. I thank you that you're at work when your word is read and considered, and I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and our minds now. Thank you that you're good. Thank you that you're gracious, and I thank you that you reign. In your name we pray. Amen. Turn it off. No, but I edited it.